right and your left, copies of Mr. Ornstein's book, The Broken Branch, How Congress is Failing America and How to Get It Back on Track, will be sold in the Cloister Hall out to the left. And there is a conversation continuing this discussion in the Bates Room out the door to the left, facilitated by Bill Dabney from the International Center. For those attending the speaker's luncheon, the Meisel Room is at the far end of the building by the reception desk, and we'll look for you there. Thank you for being here. In a moment, we will begin. Just realized my sermon is still in the pulpit. I need to get rid of that. Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 31 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. Learn more about us online at westminsterforum.org, and you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Norm Ornstein is a political scientist and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. A longtime observer of Congress and politics, he is an election analyst for CBS News and writes the weekly column, Congress Inside Out, for Roll Call, the Capitol Hill newspaper. He was co-director of the American Enterprise Institute's Election Reform Project, and he led a group of scholars and practitioners in helping to shape the McCain-Feingold law that reformed campaign financing. He has served as co-director of the Transition to Governing Project, a multi-year effort to create a better climate for governing in the era of the permanent campaign. He's the author of numerous books and articles on politics and public policy, including The Permanent Campaign and Its Future, and more recently, The Broken Branch, how Congress is failing America and how to get it back on track. He earned his MA and PhD in political science from the University of Michigan, but his real claim to fame is that he was born in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, <laughs> and grew up in St. Louis Park nearby, and we are sure that that is where he developed his sharp political instincts. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming back to Minnesota and to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Norm Ornstein. Thank you so much. Uh, it's really a, a joy to be back uh, in my native Minnesota and in this uh, magnificent uh, house of worship uh, to uh, uh, talk about uh, where the country is and where we're uh, going. Uh, just a year ago, I was here in Minnesota uh, uh, up at the University at the Humphrey Institute and I made an announcement. I wanted to pick an auspicious place. Uh, that after uh, all my years immersed in the politics of the nation, I was going to write a memoir that I had been inspired by the best-selling memoir of our times. Of course, that's Sarah Palin's Going Rogue. Uh, and I entitled mine Going Rogaine. Uh, uh, then I changed the title to Going Several Times a Night. Uh, but, but now, uh, a year later, I want to make another announcement. Uh, inspired once again by Sarah Palin, I got halfway through the book and I quit. Uh, so, <laughs> I, 
course, we have a new memoir out that has uh, everybody in Washington talking, and that's uh, Dick Cheney's memoir. Uh, I'd given him a title, uh, The Angina Monologues, but... <laughs> But he didn't use it. He never takes my advice. And uh, uh, the reviews are now in. And uh, I'm not going to say that uh, reading uh, uh, Vice President Cheney's memoirs is uh, torture. It's more like an enhanced interrogation uh, technique. <laughs> it's, uh, it's especially good to be back in Minnesota because uh, Washington uh, has been a, a very difficult place. And we've really had a rough uh, month or so. Uh, first, uh, we were uh, uh, hit by a hurricane, uh, Hurricane Irene, uh, which, uh, of course, uh, battered uh, the, uh, uh, the city and uh, left, uh, left us with thousands of people out of jobs uh, indefinitely. Uh, we call them Democrats. Uh, and then we had an earthquake, uh, a stunning, unusual event, and scientists actually have been trying to trace the epicenter. They've now found out it came from uh, Chris Christie's aerobics class. Uh, <laughs> but that's, of course, not all that we've been uh, dealing with. Uh, we've had all kinds of drama uh, uh, over the economy and uh, over jobs. Uh, President Obama, of course, uh, gave a heralded uh, job speech in Congress uh, just uh, a little over a week ago. Uh, ended up doing it uh, on the same night as the NFL season opener, which explains why Vice President uh, Biden got confused and dumped Gatorade uh, on his head. Uh, <laughs> uh, in that speech, of course, President Obama said he is an eternal optimist, uh, which means he's the kind of guy who sees the country as half-employed. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, been a tough time, and uh, you know, last month, uh, more news that kind of uh, hit the president. Uh, he got word that Jared McAnderson, who had invented the teleprompter, had died. And when the president heard this, he was speechless. <laughs> Just uh, other news, uh, of course, internationally. We're uh, still talking about Libya. Uh, where uh, we are celebrating the success of Operation Odyssey Dawn, uh, the first military action apparently named after a stripper. Uh, <laughs> we've had great success, but of course still have not found Muammar Gaddafi, and he's been sending regular messages from his various hideouts, another one today saying that he'll be willing to come forward and uh, leave the country if in return, uh, Libya will install as president his son, Muammar W. Gaddafi. Uh, <laughs> and we have, of course, uh, Republican presidential debates going on. Uh, we had uh, another one just a, a few days ago on Monday night. How many uh, watched the Republican presidential debate on uh, Monday night? Uh, how many watched Monday Night Football? Uh, I, I think uh, for the listening audience, you know what won uh, uh, in this one. And it was really interesting, of course. Uh, the debate uh, showed the rhetoric really heating up between the two front runners, uh, Rick Perry and uh, Mitt Romney. Uh, they don't really like each other. Um, uh, Perry's opposed most of Romney's positions, but to be fair, uh, so has Romney. Uh, <laughs> 
And actually, there is, uh, if you saw, if you've seen them together, there's one thing you can see that they agree on. Uh, shampoo, rinse, and repeat. Uh, <laughs> Governor Perry uh, has tried to distance himself from uh, his predecessor, George W. Bush, by saying, I went to Texas A&M and he went to Yale. In other words, I want to instill confidence by saying I'm not as smart as George W. Bush. <laughs> I actually, uh, when I look at Rick Perry, I see a cross between George W. Bush and Yosemite Sam. Uh, <laughs> and then we have the uh, person now running uh, third or thereabouts, Michelle Bachman. Uh, what can I say about our fellow Minnesotan? Uh, so many things. Uh, <laughs> But I do want to say that uh, while her latest controversy over the HPV vaccine has, you know, sort of getting a lot of uh, legs, I'm still very fond of her comment uh, uh, when she went to New Hampshire and said she was so happy to be in the state of Lexington and Concord where they fired the shot heard around the world. And that inspired me so much that the next week I went up to New York so I could go to Lexington Avenue, uh, <laughs> be in the place where they really fired the shot heard around the world. And then we have our fellow Minnesotan, Tim Pawlenty, who dropped out and just uh, earlier this week endorsed uh, Mitt Romney. I constantly get people coming up to me and asking, what happened to Pawlenty? How come he didn't catch fire? And I say to them, well, I don't want to say that uh, Tim Pawlenty is boring, uh, but he's introduced his own cologne. It's called Unscented. Uh, <laughs> So I like to get you laughing because it's all downhill from, from this point on. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, Minnesota is uh, not showing that it's uh, any more a role model for uh, Washington or the rest of the country in avoiding broken government uh, or the kind of dysfunction that we have. Uh, and it's a very, very difficult and uh, dangerous time for us to have institutions that aren't functioning the way they're supposed to. We face enormous challenges in this country. We have in particular a tremendous short-term challenge. We are in an economic ditch, and it is a ditch that we are not going to get out of for a significant amount of time. Uh, there is a wonderful book uh, that's just won all kinds of awards by economists uh, Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhardt who looked at 800 years of global economic experience and point out, uh, among other things, that when you get into uh, an economic uh, uh, downturn that's caused by a financial crisis, uh, it's not something you come out of the way you do another recession. Uh, fairly quickly with a rebound as you purge yourself of all the problems that have occurred and then you can uh, surge forward. Instead, you face an enormous dilemma because you've got debt. You've got personal debt, you've got corporate debt, you've got government debt. And you need to, as they say uh, in the lexicon, deleverage. You need to build down that debt. But the process of doing that is inimical to what it takes to build an economic recovery. Now, if you look at that dilemma, uh, and it means that you've got to try to make a very delicate pivot between a short term where you need other instruments to bring some adrenaline to your economy to keep it from uh, going into uh, an even worse state. But to do so means you may build greater debt and you need to provide some assurance that you're going to keep yourself from going into a debt-death spiral. 
That would be difficult to do, even if you had all your institutions working uh, on all cylinders, uh, and we don't. And now, to be frank, we face another tremendous problem over which we have little control, and that is a very worrisome uh, downward spiral in Europe. Uh, European banks are in terrible shape and resemble where our banks were before the collapse and right around the collapse in September of 2008. Uh, at this point, because they are so heavily invested in the debt of countries like Greece and Ireland and Portugal uh, and Italy and Spain. And Greece, as no doubt you have read, is teetering at the edge of default. If Greece does default, then those banks take a very substantial haircut. It's not clear how many can survive. Now you might say, what's that got to do with us? Our money market funds have 45% of their assets in exposure uh, to those European banks. Our banks have $1.2 trillion invested in those banks. So if we see a virus take over in Europe, it hits us just like that and could lead us into a much, much worse economic situation. That's why it is urgent that we get some kind of a jump start now and we don't seem to have the wherewithal to be able to do very much about it. Now, I think as well there's another worrisome problem that has both short-term and long-term components. Because in this downturn we have this persistent high unemployment, we are seeing large numbers of people who are going unemployed for extended periods of time. The chance of getting a job if you've been unemployed for six months or longer is diminishing. Even companies that are hiring don't want to hire people who've been unemployed for a very long time. And we know from extensive research that if you have people, especially those early in their careers, who are pushed off the ladder, they never climb up as high on the rung of success as they would have otherwise. And we're going to end up with a damaged workforce if we are going to succeed and compete through the remainder of the 21st century, unless we do something about this problem and do it now. What President Obama has put on the table seems like a lot, $447 billion worth now in the short run. But even that may not be enough to move us through these problems. And of course, one of the difficulties is that if we do these things, it's not going to get us out of the ditch in the next year it's going to keep us from moving into the abyss. And it will keep us from going deeper down into that ditch. That's a hard, inspirational case to make. Then we've got the long term, the deficit and debt problem that could easily spiral out of control. But at the same time, as we move to deal with that long-term problem, over the next 10 or 15 years and change the cost curve, the movement of where government would go otherwise, while also providing adequate revenues along the way. But you want to do it smartly. And that means make sure that you continue to invest in things that will grow the economy and provide jobs for people in the future. And you need to protect public safety. When you look at some of the proposals that were made by the Republicans in Congress in this last year on the continuing resolution for the budget that we now exist in that involved a 22% across the board cut in all discretionary programs, 
Just to give you one example, that 22% cut would have meant furloughing enough people in the uh, uh, meat inspection service at the Department of Agriculture that based on what they did last year, we would have had a million additional pounds of tainted meat and poultry on the shelves or in the restaurants. We're already seeing problems with E. coli and other kinds of uh, foodborne diseases. Uh, that is, uh, if I'm going to put it politely, a penny-wise and pound-foolish way to try and get ourselves out of our debt problem. And uh, we see the same thing with the shutdown of the uh, Federal Aviation Administration, which has now retarded the ability uh, that we have to move to uh, a, an air traffic control system that pulls us into the 20th century, much less the 21st century. Uh, last night, my plane uh, from Washington to Minneapolis was delayed for an hour because of weather systems that meant substantial rerouting. And we know we get this rerouting taking place all the time that makes matters much worse because we have an antiquated uh, system that doesn't allow planes to go where they really should go. Uh, we've got a proposal on the table to deal with that. It brings greater efficiency to the country and ultimately leads to economic growth, but it's been retarded because of the debates we're having right now. All of this is a demonstration of the dysfunction that we have. And no better example of it than the ridiculous fandango that we had over the last year uh, surrounding the debt ceiling and the debt limit. Uh, now, frankly, uh, it's kind of foolish uh, for uh, a country to have periodic votes on increasing the debt limit. We are one of only two countries among significant democracies that uh, do this uh, because you're not actually adding to your debt. What you're doing is paying for debts that you have previously incurred. Now, we've increased our debt ceiling uh, 78 times since 1960. And almost always it becomes a political exercise in hypocrisy as people who are a part of the president's party talk about how we've got to be responsible and people who are a part of the other party feel as if they can vote against and treat uh, the president's party as a pinata, that they're the ones for fiscal responsibility. But every time in the past, everybody knew it was a charade and that ultimately the votes would be there to increase the debt limit because the failure to do so would mean basically damaging uh, our most significant asset, the full faith uh, and credit of the United States. This time was different. This time we held the full faith and credit of the United States hostage to political demands that got us this close to actually defaulting and that led to the first uh, downgrade in the history of the U.S. in its credit by one ratings agency. Now, I'm not going to suggest to you that Standard and Poor's, given its previous uh, actions, uh, including giving AAA ratings to uh, mortgage-backed securities, uh, is uh, itself the gold standard. It's more poor uh, than standard. Uh, uh, uh. But their point here was a good one. And their point was, even if the US did increase its debt limit, we see signs of profound dysfunction that make us uncertain about whether the US can actually get a handle on its problems, can come together in the way that we've always known it would in the past to make sure that it resolves serious 
issues and solves problems. And we saw a similar response in an unprecedented way from the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, with unusual pointed criticism of Congress for the same kinds of politics. And all of that is perhaps exhibit A in what is uh, the deepest dysfunction that I have seen in our political institutions in the 42 years that I have been immersed in the politics uh, of Washington and I don't see things getting a whole lot better. Now, I'm gonna spend a couple of minutes just laying out why we're in this position. Um, and, uh, not a lot of time uh, because I wanna leave the time to talk about where we go from here and also uh, for uh, some dialogue. But let me say we have a combination of many things. Some are secular trends in the society. We have had a dramatic change in our regional alignments uh, in America over the last 50 years that have altered our parties. When I came to Washington from uh, uh, here in 1969, uh, the Democratic Party was in a majority uh, that it had been in for a quarter century straight in the House of Representatives. It lasted for 40 years, but it was a majority made up roughly equally of Southern conservative Democrats who uh, basically provided a kind of base for the Democrats and the rest of the country, uh, non-Southern, mostly liberal members. Uh, they had one thing in common, they could make a majority. When I came to Washington, the Republican Party had about a third of its members, at least a quarter, uh, from the Northeast, from the West Coast, and some from places like Minnesota who were moderate or liberal Republicans. The conservative Democrats back then we called boll weevils for that insect that infects cotton. The moderate Republicans we called gypsy moths for the uh, insect that infects hardwood trees, mostly in the Northeast. But what it meant was that most of the members were somewhere near the center of the political process and there was a lot of admixture between the parties and you could find coalitions in the center across party lines. Well, the change began perhaps uh, with the signing of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 when Lyndon Johnson turned to his uh, then aide, uh, Harry McPherson, and said, this is gonna cost the Democratic Party the South for generations to come. And that combined with dramatic changes in migration habits in the United States some of it driven by air conditioning. People could move to the South, including seniors retiring in places like Florida where they wouldn't before because the summers were too oppressive. Now air conditioning made it possible to do so. Some of them came from the Northeast uh, and many others moved in different directions towards the West Coast. And we saw a transformation of New England and of the West Coast. Bastions of moderate Republicanism suddenly became all democratic. And over 40 years, the Democratic Party became more cohesive uh, and homogeneous and moved left. And the Republican Party became more cohesive and homogeneous and moved significantly right. And we have seen the collapse of the center and now the, its virtual demise, uh, far more in the Republican Party than in the Democratic Party. There are still some of those moderate Democrats, we now call them blue dogs, but they are an endangered species at this point as well, and some of them are gonna be uh, uh, targeted in the redistricting process this year, and we will be left with even less of a center. As it's happened in Washington, it has begun to happen uh, with uh, the broader public out in the country as well. We're starting to divide in that way, 
and some of it is because uh, of uh, uh, geographical patterns. We've also seen structural changes in American politics, including reforms that began in the late 60s and early 70s. The rise of primaries, meaning the decline of the ability of elites to choose candidates either for president or for Congress. And as we've had more and more importance of primaries, it's increased the importance of activist ideological bases, acting like electromagnets, pulling us once again further from the center. The redistricting process over the last 30 years has contributed to this, creating more and more safe districts for one party or the other, and that means that the only pressure is in the primaries, not in general elections, and even more moderate members have been pulled off to extremes because they fear losing in primaries, and believe me, we've seen a dramatic increase in that after the experience in 2010 when you had people like conservative Senator Bob Bennett of Utah one of the most conservative members by voting record, who was denied even the opportunity to run for his party's renomination uh, after several terms in the Senate because he had had the temerity to work with a progressive Democrat, Ron Wyden, on a health care plan, uh, meaning that he performed the equivalent of sleeping with the enemy, which was anathema to them. Uh, then we've had policy changes that have transformed our politics not the least being the deeply destructive, and we are going to see increasingly how destructive to the fabric of our society and culture, the Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court, which has taken a very difficult and corrosive role for money in American politics and amplified it in even more corrosive ways. All of this has both contributed to and been amplified even more by cultural changes. And part of the great dilemma we face here is uh, you can change institutions much easier than you can change culture. In part because of changes in our national media, we've gone back uh, to the future in a way, back to what we had in the 19th century with partisan media, uh, but in a much, much more significant fashion. In the 19th century, many fewer people were either reading newspapers or paying attention to what was going on, and it spread much less rapidly than what we have now with cable television news, talk radio, uh, tweets, and other social media that uh, now are much more politicized and in a, an environment where you're not just competing with one or two other networks or with a handful of other radio stations or with three or four uh, print outlets, but with millions of places competing for eyeballs and ears uh, the way to get attention is to be more shrill and more extreme. And we now have a culture so corroded that instead of anybody saying when somebody uh, says something that's blatantly false or untrue, shame on you, what happens is you get rewarded with your own television show or radio show and showered with millions of dollars. Uh, our role models for people going into politics are not the ones whose noses are to the grindstone working quietly to make good public policy, but the shouters and screamers and liars who get on television all the time and can even become significant presidential candidates in the process. All of this has led to a kind of tribal culture 
When I came to Washington, members of Congress would refer to those on the other side of the aisle as adversaries. Your adversary one day can be your ally the next. Now it's the enemy. And all of this because we live in the era of the permanent campaign. There's not a season of governing, the additive process where you try and work together because after all, what governing does to solve problems is to tell people that they're going to have to take some short-term pain to provide a long-term gain. Human nature doesn't accept that very easily. I actually reflected on this a few months back, the evening before my colonoscopy, uh, <laughs> where my physician had said, trust me, this is good for you. It was hard to accept that, but I accepted the authority of my gastroenterologist much more than any of us will naturally accept the authority of politicians. In our society, the culture says, you don't trust them, you get distance from them. So we can implement that change if people accept that trust, and that trust comes when you get broad bipartisan leadership consensus. Now we don't have that. And if you want to look at where we are in the era of the permanent campaign and of tribal politics, just look at a series of comments made by the quite remarkably candid Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Multiple times saying uh, this last year, my number one goal is to make Barack Obama a one-term president. Now, it's not my number one goal is to provide jobs, to get us out of the economic ditch, to help with the long-term education process and our workforce, to deal with our threats abroad. In the era of the permanent campaign, you start with the goal of defeating your enemy. Then, in a rather candid comment, Senator McConnell said about the first two years of the Obama administration and working on an economic recovery, health reform, financial regulation and the like, well, of course we didn't work with him. Because if we'd done so, people might have seen it as bipartisan when those things happened, and it would have rewarded him. And we weren't going to do that. And of course, after the debt limit vote, Senator McConnell said, well, now we've seen that we can use the debt limit as ransom, and it's going to become a regular feature. Now, it's not just McConnell. When uh, President Obama endorsed the Gang of Six plan, six senators from across the aisle, ranging from uh, very, very conservative Tom Coburn of Oklahoma to very liberal Dick Durbin of Illinois, a $4 trillion plan to try and deal with our debt problem. A senior uh, Republican Senate aide told uh, the magazine Politico uh, that uh, President Obama's endorsement was like a death sentence for the Gang of Six plan. If he's for it, we will be against it. And on the jobs bill, a senior Republican House leadership aide said to Politico, uh, Obama's on the ropes. Why would we give him a victory? Now, I don't care who the president is or who we're talking about in Congress. If everything gets filtered through the prism of who politically this will help or hurt instead of what problems can we solve, that's a chilling kind of reality to deal with when we've got the problems in this society that we have. So what do we do? Let me start with one thing 
in the category of what not to do. There's a great lure for many people, including my fellow Minnesotan, uh, Tom Friedman, to a movement to create an independent candidate or a third party for president. That's not going to be effective. The nature of our election system is such that that candidate cannot win or in the extremely unlikely uh, possibility that he or she could, would come to a Congress with nobody in the center and no adherence. But it could lead in a three-way race to an extreme candidate winning with a plurality, which would lead us in an even worse direction. So what can we do? There are structural reforms that we should go for. We should try to reform the redistricting process. We should move more towards what California is doing with open primaries to try and break some of the influence of the extreme ideologues who now have far more leverage than they should in presidential politics and uh, uh, in the congressional process. We need very much to try and change the campaign finance system, although the best we could do there uh, would be to build up a large retirement fund for Justice Anthony Kennedy. Uh, <laughs> try and change the court itself. But there are other things that we could do to move away from an influence of money in politics that is deeply corrupting, but also is giving enormous additional influence to uh, the wealthiest among us, corporations and individuals. And because, among other things, they can pay a premium for television time, they will end up drowning out the candidates. We'll have elections where the candidates are not serious players in their own races, which is not the way elections are supposed to go. If I could do my one dreamless thing, it would be something that we won't do in the United States, which is to adopt some version of the Australian system of mandatory attendance at the polls. In Australia, if you don't go to the polls, you can vote for none of the above, you pay a fine. It's the equivalent of about $15. And believe it or not, that makes an enormous difference. They get about 97% who turn out. The big difference is we don't have, they don't have politics that are driven by exciting or frightening the bases. Instead, you know that your base will turn out. You know that their base will turn out, and you focus on those voters in the middle uh, who are not tied to ideological extremes. But we don't like mandatory anything. So we have to try as best we can, working with those things, but also to change our culture. Some of it comes from having events like these town hall forums, where we can bring back at least some sense of how you can have civil, reasonable, lively discourse without viewing the other side as the enemy. That's what I used to see here in Minnesota when we had two parties that would function not as tribes, but as respectful adversaries. One of my ideas is to get a group of former members of Congress, and there are some great Minnesotans uh, like Bill Frenzel uh, who we can get to participate, to do their own mock Congress where they can show actually on a series of issues how you can have that kind of respectful debate in a way that we simply don't get uh, inside the process now. And we have to try to rebuild a public square. One of the things that's happened with our media is we fragmented so much that we no longer share a common set of facts around which we can debate solutions to problems. We don't have common facts anymore, we have fragmentation. The only way we can rebuild a public square is to make sure we have a robust and expanded public media. And we have to find ways 
to finance it, to support it, and to move it. It's not that 100 million people are going to go to it, but if it's there, people will come and it will provide that kind of a role model. Unfortunately, that's going to be a long, slow process. And in the short term, we're likely to have more dysfunction, more polarization, before we come to our senses and return to something else. And I can only hope and pray that the mismatch between the abilities of this dysfunctional political process to solve problems and the enormous daunting problems that we have uh, won't lead to a catastrophe uh, along the way. Uh, so that ought to leave uh, ample opportunity uh, for discourse uh, in the remaining time that we have. Thank you very much. Thank you, Norm Ornstein. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is political scientist Norm Ornstein. We'll be taking questions for our guest speaker from the radio audience through Twitter and Facebook. Our Twitter handle is WestminsterTHF. And you can find us on Facebook at Westminster Town Hall Forum. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd invite you here to join us at Westminster for our next forum on Thursday, October 20th at noon, when economist Jeffrey Sachs will explore reawakening American virtue and prosperity. And now, Mr. Ornstein, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. When you and I spoke before we began the town hall forum, you assured me that you were not a shouter. You never said anything about being a comedian, however. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you might comment on the, the difference between rhetoric and substantive discussion of ideas. And much of our political scene, it seems to me, is in, engaged in rhetoric, but not much ideas. How do we move from the rhetoric to ideas? Uh, that's a very good question. And be before I do that, there's one thing I did want to mention. I know that uh, Walter Mondale is a, a congregant here, and uh, Walter Mondale is one of my heroes uh, growing up and one of our great statesmen. And I, he's going through very difficult family times right now with his wonderful daughter, Eleanor, and I, I, I want all of us to send our thoughts and prayers to the Mondale uh, family. Thank you. Um, on rhetoric and, uh, and real discourse, you know, a part of the problem, and it, it drives me crazy, is that there really is a lot of common ground here. Despite what we see with these sharp ideological differences, if you want to look, for example, at uh, health reform, uh, take a look at the ideas that another Minnesotan, Dave Dernberger, uh, came up with during his years of service in the Senate and even what he's saying now, which are much, much closer to what uh, is in the uh, Affordable Care Act, the Obama health care plan, uh, than uh, one might imagine, given the rhetoric. Uh, the fact is that most of those ideas had been originally embraced or sometimes created by conservatives. Uh, if we look at what some of what's in the uh, jobs plan that the president has, uh, for example, a tax credit uh, or the uh, tax cut in the payroll tax, temporary tax cut, it was proposed two years ago by John McCain and voted on and supported by every single Senate Republican. 
Now we're back to not discussing whether that's a good thing to do or the best way to do it. And there are arguments about whether you get the most bang for the buck through tax cuts of that sort or through spending programs like infrastructure, also which have been supported in a bipartisan way. But now it's all about rhetoric and about tribe. And until you can have honest discourse where you get a discussion of policy proposals not filtered through the lens of who's proposing them because if he or she is for it, then I've got to be against it, but rather are these really good ideas or not, you can't solve problems. We used to solve problems that way much more than we do now, and uh, that's one of the reasons why um, I'd like to get these former members of Congress who are not caught up so much in that permanent campaign or tribal politics uh, to try and uh, get us back to it. Do you think term limits would help in some of these congressional areas? Uh, you know, this is a, uh, uh, a mainstay uh, for a lot of people. Uh, but I'm against term limits. I'm actually against all term limits. Uh, I think we made a mistake uh, when we uh, passed the 22nd Amendment to the Constitution that limited presidential uh, terms to two. Uh, you create an automatic lame duck after the first term. If you look at how term limits have worked in places like California, the desire here to try and channel ambition in a positive direction actually backfires. Uh, what happens is that uh, people come into an office if they know they can only serve for six years or 12 years. First, they have no interest in their own institutions, in institutional maintenance or institutional integrity, because they're only going to be there for a little while. It's like somebody renting a place as opposed to owning a place. Uh, you know, if it deteriorates, uh, the roof isn't, is leaking a little bit, what do you care? At the same time, people coming into those offices immediately start looking at the next thing that they're going to do. And they want a big short-term splash, and if they leave a mess behind, that's okay because they're off to the next post. And then what you get in a place like California is you lose your institutional memory and it's the staff and the lobbyists who end up with even more power. So uh, I understand the sentiment, but it's unfortunately not workable. David Brooks, who's been a guest of the Town Hall Forum twice in recent years, predicted that it will take a national bankruptcy to finally motivate Congress to act on some of these issues. What do you think? Well, that may be the most optimistic thing uh, I've, uh, I've heard. Uh, <laughs> One of the things I'm fearful of, actually, is that uh, in, in the past, we've had uh, plenty, it is true, we've had plenty of periods of corrosive, uh, difficult partisanship, of difficulty uh, reaching uh, goals that we should reach, uh, of issues where we teetered at the edge of uh, disaster, including things like uh, uh, extending the draft before we entered uh, the Second World War. We had all these years where we couldn't resolve uh, issues of civil rights. We've had lots of, uh, uh, of uh, issues and problems. But whenever we had a crisis, we came together. We transcended the petty disputes or even the deep and difficult regional or partisan divisions. We did it with 9-11, uh, coming at a very difficult time. After the most disputed, controversial, contentious presidential election in over 100 years, just a few months later, we had this disaster, and just as the dust settled, every member of Congress gets on the steps of the Capitol to sing God Bless America together to show that we uh, have solidarity. 
What I fear now is if we had another 9-11, uh, you wouldn't get every member on the steps of the Capitol. You'd have a couple hundred of them back in their offices writing impeachment resolutions that we are so divided now. And if you look at whether people have drawn lessons from the near bankruptcy that came with default, they're not saying, oops, we just dodged a bullet. We'd better find a better way of dealing with this. Go back to that McConnell quote. Hey, this is great. Now we can use the debt limit as ransom every time. If that's the attitude that we have, uh, Brooks may be too optimistic. Do you believe that government finance political campaigns would be an improvement over our present campaign finance system? I believe we need to bring some public money into the game, but I don't believe in full public financing. What I would like to do, and I've got a, a plan that I put together with um, three other uh, terrific scholars, uh, Tom Mann at the Brookings Institution, Michael Malbin at the Campaign Finance Institute, and Tony Corrado, who's at Colby College, that would provide many, many more incentives for small donors. Some of it builds on the Minnesota system, where you have a tax credit for small donors, and it's made a real difference. I believe to get leverage for small donors, you've got to provide multiple matching funds along with uh, a kind of tax credit so that people will give. And in this new internet age where you can do it without having to spend an enormous amount of money raising the uh, money from small donors, you could tilt the balance away from the ultra-wealthy uh, and corporations, some to do so. Uh, Full public financing, I think, is not uh, a workable system, but we have to realize that it's not just Citizens United. We don't have a regulatory system in the U.S. The tribal politics have taken over the Federal Election Commission where uh, they basically can't do anything. And so you can violate the law with impunity and everybody knows it. And so we're seeing all this big money flooding into the process and corrupting it. And just tilting the system towards the small donors isn't going to be enough unless we do something to bring some boundaries back to this process. What effect has religious rhetoric and religious perspective had on our current divided political discourse? Uh, that's an interesting question, and uh, I don't have a full answer for it. Uh, I am glad in many ways that we have... Uh, religious entities and religious people involved in our politics because it reminds us of values. But when it turns to either the exploitation of religion for political purposes or towards the kind of mindset that uh, if you don't meet moral standards, uh, then you are illegitimate, and we see a significant amount of this, uh, then it leads us in a very bad direction. And I think we've tilted a little bit too much in that latter direction of late and not towards uh, the uh, use of important humanist values that come out of religion that can help to uh, uh, educate us about what we need to do in a society. Let, let me mention one other problem that's related to this that I'm growing increasingly uneasy about. Some of you probably remember the seminal documentary that CBS ran uh, now uh, almost 50 years ago, Hunger in America, that jolted this country. We thought of starvation, of serious hunger as being something that occurred in other parts of the world, and it turned out we had a significant amount of it here. 
and it transformed us from the pulpit in many places where preachers would remind their congregants of their obligations uh, and it really changed things. Well, we're now moving in a direction that where we could just redo that documentary all over again. And as we see from the census reports uh, the other day, the increasing number of people moving into poverty. What I hear from people who run the food banks in Washington and elsewhere and people engaged in this issue, that they're getting more and more coming to them. Uh, people who don't have jobs or whose jobs can't pay enough to provide for rent and utilities and for food, uh, for the problem that I mentioned of the long-term unemployed, and all these food banks are hitting a triple or quadruple whammy. First of all, as we move more and more towards uh, ethanol and other uh, food-based fuels, we are reducing the food supply, and the surplus foods that used to go to the food banks just aren't there anymore. Secondly, because we're hitting these tough economic times, people are giving less money uh, in charitable contributions. And third, governments, state and local, as well as the federal government, in this fiscal squeeze are cutting back. What kind of a society are we going to have if our response to that is to say, tough? Now that's where I think uh, religion can play a very significant role to remind us what we are as a community and what we need to be as a society. And I think we've gotten far away from that in our politics. And that's one place where I'd like to see more religion, not less. Do both major political parties bear responsibility or equal responsibility for the current political gridlock? Uh, I'm very wary of a false equivalence here. Um, there was a really interesting, uh, 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 it actually ended up being a blog post by a 28-year Republican staff veteran of the Senate Budget Committee who just retired who said, uh, look, both parties stink in so many ways, but it's my party, the Republican Party, that has gone completely off the rails here. And I do think that we have to recognize that while nobody is immune from the permanent campaign, and while neither side is free of charges of using demagoguery, excessive rhetoric, of playing politics with significant issues, right now the real vexing problem comes from the lunatic fringe uh, of, uh, uh, on the right uh, that is helping to drive our politics in a different direction. And I think the use of uh, some of these tools to try and accomplish political goals over problem solving. So uh, this is not uh, an equivalent problem. And I'm not going to excuse anybody. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's uh, one side is pristine, the other is not. But there's not a, 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 an, a, an equivalence here. We have time for one more question. Where do you find hope on the American political scene today? <clears throat> well, first of all, the jokes just come to me. I don't even have to write them anymore. Uh, it's not, not difficult. Uh, second, I do think uh, we still have a wonderful society from the bottom up. We do have 
an incredibly vibrant, entrepreneurial, free people who, most of whom, are not participating in these games, even those who identify as part of one tribe or the other. They watch Fox News, they listen to Rush Limbaugh, they read the Wall Street Journal editorial page, or they read Paul Krugman, uh, they watch MSNBC. Uh, most are troubled by the inability of those they send to Washington to transcend the problems to solve them. Most are spending their daily lives trying to work and uh, provide for their families and have an instinct to help others. So I think this is still less a problem of our background, our culture, uh, and our uh, basics uh, than it is of, uh, uh, of some pathologies that have gotten out of hand. And ultimately, we will come back to it. I would, uh, Tim mentioned, though, one more thing that troubles me. Uh, some of you may have read recently that Pennsylvania is considering doing what is perfectly constitutional, changing the way it counts its electoral votes, to do it by congressional district rather than by winner-take-all. Now, we could have a debate, an interesting one, over a long period of time of whether the Electoral College is a good thing or a bad thing, uh, whether maybe all states ought to do this. But when one state is doing this, and the reason is to try and tilt the presidential election in one direction, to take something where one party's likely to win the state and dilute those votes, but not the other states, it troubles me, and it troubles me for this reason. What happens if we have a presidential election in 2012, we'll say one or two or three states do this, and a candidate wins the popular vote, and simply because of a 11th hour manipulation of a state's rules, loses the electoral college. That will make the 2000 election look like a picnic by comparison. And what we don't want to do, with all of the difficulties that we have, is to create a genuine crisis of legitimacy in the system. Uh, if we can avoid that, it may take a while, but we'll come out of this. That's the history of the United States. But, you know, this kind of economic conditions, and I see the rise of some very dangerous movements in Europe, uh, especially, uh, much more than we see here, very similar to what we had in the 1930s. Difficult economic times bring out a kind of vicious, nativist, uh, often anti-Semitic and racist populism. We're starting to see it more over there. Uh, Things can unravel, and if they unravel uh, in other places, we can't believe that we are utterly immune from that, and we need to be vigilant to make sure we keep this within some boundaries. Thank you, Norm Ornstein. Thank you. Thank you.